With the architecture of many ancient civilizations reduced to ruins and their painting lost without trace, sculpture has assumed a position as the greatest art. Many spectacular fragments are exhibited at archaeological sites or hold pride of place in museums. They are viewed as prime evidence of artistic creation, that is, of man's power over raw material and nature. Whereas buildings have survived reasonably intact are few and far between, and major paintings have virtually disappeared, works of sculpture has been preserved in vast numbers. Chronologically, the works extend cover a good thousand years without a break from archaic times to imperial period, and geographically they range from the Italian colonies to Asia Minor. Given the abundance of surviving monuments and a mass of texture information, archaeologists of Greek sculpture would appear to be in a strong position, but much more than this is required if we are to obtain a complete and reliable picture. The first obstacle is one common to the study of all relatively ancient civilizations: the older a work, the more likely it is to have been damaged, and the less we tend to know of its state, function, and so on. Besides the problems of restoration, identification, and attribution, there is the difficulty of ascertaining two other important details in the history of a work: the date and the place of its origin. To take chronology first, our knowledge of Greek sculpture is now good enough for us to be able to date most works unhesitatingly to within some fifty or a hundred years. But there are always difficult cases. There has been uncertainty over the date of Venus de Milo. And the statues of the Temple of Lycosora have been ascribed to various dates between the second century B.C. and the second century A.D. It would not be too unkind to say that specialists regard it as their professional duty to find reasons, whether well-founded or otherwise, for contesting the generally accepted chronology. We shall be accepting the usual chronology here, but it must be admitted that the evidence for dating works is reliable only up to a point. Ideally, the date is indicated by a text, such as the passage in Herodotus, which tells us that the Sifnian treasury at Delphi was built around 525 B.C. Or it may be inscribed on the work itself. For instance, in the case of the funerary still of Dexilios, with this inscription saying that the young man had died during the archonship at Eubolides, namely, very precisely, in 394 B.C. But such good fortune is really unusual, as information provided by the context of the archaeological excavation is not much more frequent. We can date works only by their style, that is, by their resemblance to or difference from works which have definite dates. When taken to extreme by scholars who believe they can pin a date down to the decade or even half decade, this method can be very dangerous, because the works used as points or reference are not always incontestably dated themselves, and most of all, because stylistic similarities and differences do not necessarily depend on period. We know that artistic chronology and geography affect the dating of a work. Unfortunately, we do not always have a very good idea of where any individual work was made. Indeed, apart from those relatively numerous cases where a work has come down to us through a trade in antiquities or doubtful legality, and those who profited by it having a good reason to keep quiet about provenance, the first thing we know about a work is where it was found, or consequently, what it was used for. Very often, of course, when it was made for an everyday purpose. It must have been made where it was found. A funerary still found and therefore used in Boyo too is very likely to have been carved there.
However, the situation is different with more important works for two main reasons. First, as we shall see, from archaic times onwards, leading sculpture worked far from their native cities, and second, the great temples received votive offerings from many different cities, which may have produced and transported the work rather than commissioning it at its destination. On Delos, for instance, statues given by Naxians stand side by side with statues given by Parians, and only debatable differences of style allow us to distinguish them. Over and beyond these difficulties, common to all archaeological research, the study of Greek sculpture is more specifically subject to a kind of misapprehension quite frequent in classical studies. Which inclines to suppose that what is available to us now was important in classical antiquity. Pompeii, for instance, was one provincial town among many, and owes its archaeological significance solely to its exceptional state of preservation. The same applies to sculpture from two points of view. First, we are willing to grant sculpture preeminence in Greek art because a great deal of it has survived. Yet there are good grounds for thinking that the Greeks themselves ranked painting much higher, and very few paintings have survived. Above all, in the field of sculpture itself, we tend to believe that the items now extant are very best that were produced. We take insufficient account of two major losses, of materials that have perished, and of originals by famous sculptor. Which can be assessed only by the comparison of the surviving works and the evidence of literary texts. In the first place, some of the material used in statuary which has perished were those most highly prized by the Greeks: white marble from Mount Pentelikos, Peros, Naxos, or elsewhere, and stone in general were not as exclusively used as we might be tempted to think from what we see today in our galleries of classical antiquities. Greek sculpture employed many other materials. Wood was used chiefly in the creation of very ancient works, mainly the cold statues, often called Soana. It was also used for making an extremely famous piece which has not been preserved, a cedarwood chest ornamented with figures from ivory and gold, presented to the Olympia by Cyclisos, tyrant of Corinth. The combination of gold and ivory occurs in the technique described. From the words for those two materials, as chryselephantine and literary tradition traces its origin back to the beginnings of the archaic period. In this technique, a wooden core was overlaid with carved ivory representing flesh and plates of gold representing clothing. Several cult statues of the classical period was of chryselephantine work. Among them, the Zeus in the temple at Olympia and the Athena Parthenodes in the Parthenon, regarded as the two masterpieces of Phidias. Then there were other metals, iron mentioned several times in the text, lead used for small figurines often made for magical purposes, and above all, bronze in which most of the famous statues were cast. Finally. Various plastic materials seem to have been in restricted use. These included clay, the usual material for figurines of the kind traditionally called tanagra figures, but not common for large works of sculpture except in Cyprus. Although there are several famous pieces, such as the figure of Zeus carrying of Ganymede at Olympia. And the head of a Theban sphinx, and lastly, stucco, principally used in private houses to add relief ornamentation to polychrome walls. 
there is no universally accepted hierarchy of the materials used in sculpture, any more than there is of the different arts. But it is unusual for a civilization not to arrange them on a scale of values. The Greeks had their own scale. They rated chrysolophantine most highly because it was the most expensive and thirst rarely used. Then bronze, and then possibly wood, because of the great antiquity of its use in sculpture. Marble came after these. So what is left? Wood is preserved only in very dry or very wet soil, and only a few remnants of wood sculpture survive, including a large statuette from Samos. Very little chrysolophantine statuary remains. The combination of ivory and gold was very fragile. In the middle of the Hellenistic period, the inventories of the temple treasuries at Delos tell us that a piece of gold had already come this way from the statue of Apollo, and when paganism came to an end, it was tempting to reuse these two precious materials. We still have various small ivories and plates of worked gold, but of the vast chrysolophantine statues mentioned and sometimes described in ancient texts, the only parts now extant. Are three heads and some other life-size archaic fragments, much restored, which were discovered at Delphi in a trench dug beneath the sacred way. Finally, bronze, easy to melt and therefore to recycle for other purposes, has largely disappeared. We owe the preservation of bronzes to special circumstances. In contrast to the almost total disappearance of any chrysolophantine work and the rarity of sculpture using wood and bronze. Thousands of marble works fill our museums. In short, the material most commonly found today was regarded as relatively mediocre in classical antiquity. Unfortunately, for the archaeology of Greek sculpture, the durability of materials is in inverse proportion to their status in ancient times. Moreover, we do not usually see the extant works as they were in antiquity. Color contrasts have usually been obliterated. Such effects were the raisin tree of chrysolophantine statuary, but in all Greek sculptures, such contrasts were obtained by painting the main material, or by mixing materials.